past four months in America seem like a lifetime. It's hard to remember a period in the past 50 years when so much happened in such a short amount of time. The impeachment of a president, a public health crisis that turned into a global pandemic, a subsequent and sudden economic collapse that produced record high unemployment filings, intense racial unrest and protests triggered by police brutality. How are we coping with all this upheaval? The sociological impact of a society in turmoil is our topic today. Greetings and welcome to this episode of the Tuesday Talk Podcast. I'm Max Jones, editor of the Tribune Star in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each episode of this podcast focuses on topics of community interest and will feature interviews with those closest to them. The segments will be posted at the Tribune Star's website at tribstar.com and will also be available wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today is Tom Steiger, Professor of Sociology and Director of the Center for Student Research and Creativity at Indiana State University. Tom is also a periodic columnist for the Tribune Star. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. I really appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, this is a, a, a different kind of thing for me, and I think it's a different kind of thing for the Tribune Star. I know you've been doing these, but well, it is. I'm it's glad been, to be here. It's, it's been a fascinating experience, and I've really enjoyed it. And uh, when I get to talk to people I know, it's e- it's even better. <laughs> I've got to ask you, though, um, I, I talked to a, a public school teacher, Tanya Faff, a few weeks ago, and uh, uh, I was so curious about how the transition for her went in the classroom when suddenly their semester got disrupted uh, in March. So I've got to ask you the same thing. Obviously, you're in a different level uh, of, uh, of teaching in higher ed, but what was it like for you to suddenly have a semester uh, disrupted uh, the way it was. Well, um, I I was fortunate. I've been teaching online for well, getting close to twenty years. But uh, all the so that means that I was familiar with the software. So unlike a lot of teachers, whether they be college or whether they be you know uh, K twelve, suddenly you're faced with having to learn how to use the software that you do all this, it's called a learning platform. I at least was familiar with it. Um, the difference was is that I've always taught what's called an asynchronous course, where you set things up, uh, students come in, they have a deadline, usually everything's due in a week, and then they work at their own speed, usually on their own, sometimes collaboratively, that depends, it's not always the case. But when we went online, we had to be synchronous, so that meant that we continued to meet our classes live. Um, my course was from 1230 to 145 on Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, and that was very different. The live technology is, is, is just a very different thing because stuff, you know, you can't, you can't test anything. Mm-hmm. It's like improv, right? You never know what's <laughs> going to happen. Anyway, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult. I mean, a third of my students had never been online before. Because I asked them before we, we left, I said, how many of you have ever done an online course? Well, you know, a full third of the class had never, didn't even know what Blackboard was. 
even though it's common to be used even in face-to-face classes as a supplement. Um, I, there, there are lots of, there's so many permutations and combinations that come through. So I had many students who were in class every day, and I tracked that because, you know, I don't take attendance, but the class is very collaborative, and so students have to be there to collaborate, right? We do problem solving in class, and they have to be there. Um, and I had very good attendance, even though we had some flu and stuff. Very good attendance. Once we got online, attendance fell almost to half. I rarely ever had much more than half a class there on any particular Tuesday or Thursday, with some students just disappearing, completely disappearing. They were really good in class, and they completely disappeared. Wow. Um, so that was very difficult. I kept reaching out to them. I found out in one case that one of the students' mother had COVID. Um, in some cases, it simply was no access to reliable internet. Some of the students were trying to uh, phone, you know, basically, I didn't do any video, I just did audio. <laughs> some students were trying to do this on their cell phones, on a cell signal, which just didn't have enough bandwidth, everything to keep them on there. It, and they couldn't go anywhere. You know, you couldn't say, well, go to the library, because the libraries were closed. You couldn't say, go sit out in the parking lot of Subway, okay, and, and steal their internet because the subways were, everything was just shut down right at that point. So I went from having a class that was um, on its way to probably having a, a, maybe the, 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 the majority of the class earning A's, certainly everybody on A or B, and I had a, a lot of students who ended up failing. They just disappeared. Not um, necessarily because of their disinterest. Not because of their disinterest, because of what happened. Also, you you know, a lot of students, um, it's a very different social support system. So I had students who suddenly were working. And I said, what do you mean you're working? He said, well, I came home. I had to go to work. So, you know, it's kind of like, hmm, I wonder what that's all about. Um, other students who had to take care of siblings, they're the oldest one. Suddenly they're pressed into child care at home. And then you have different friendship networks. So for some students, when they come to college, and this is the importance of being on a college campus, is everyone is here pretty much for the same reason, right? And people will support each other getting to class and things like that. There's this whole social support network that we take for granted. And when they go home, that disappears. I had one student, he couldn't remember what time the class was. I said, I don't understand. You've been coming to this class for almost you know, two months. How is it that you're, you can't remember what time it is? How did you remember what time it was when you were, when you were here? He said, well, my roommate was in the same class. Huh. So he was relying on his roommate wow. to keep him coming to class. But when he went home, he didn't have that roommate anymore. Wow, what a fascinating experience. All these little things called weak ties. These are weak ties that people have to each other Mm -hmm. that keep everything going. You don't realize it until you lose a lot of them. And things are like, ugh, what's going on? Well, that... It was was pretty bad for for a lot of my students. Well, that kind of helps us transition into some of the other things I wanted to talk to you about. And um, as as I've thought about uh, everything that's happened to us and the um, upheaval of the past five months and the way it's created this continual strain on societal structures and institutions, uh, it seems as if nothing has been spared 
It's hit us in almost every way imaginable, from public health to politics, from culture to economics. What what have been your observations about how you see people reacting to everything that's going on around them? Well, I, well how do you start that one? <laughs> I didn't want well, to make okay, it so easy on you. Di- different different people are going to react to change in different ways, okay, at an individual level. So we're going to speak talk a little bit more about psychology. We know that there are personality types that deal with change and risk differently than others. So some, you know, you know, some invite change. They create a lot of change in their life all the time. You know, they mix things up. You know, they change the furniture around you know, all the time. They move around. They do things like that. That's one extreme. Then you have the extreme sort of like um, my parents. So I I have seen uh, uh, home movies of when my parents first moved into the house I grew up in. That house, those pictures were exactly the same when I sold the house after my dad died. It had not changed in 50 years. And so some people are like that. They're very change-averse. They like things the way they're used to, right? That's the way they like it. And so you see all of that happening right now. Some people are just very dogged in trying to keep what for them is their normal routines and things like that, and others adapt much easier. You couple that now as more at a societal level where what we're seeing is we're seeing some of this personality stuff sort of also now starting to fall into certain categories. And we can see that with politics. So some of the more, you know, those more willing to seek change or can handle change and things like that, they tend to be a little bit more liberal. And then, not surprisingly, those who are a little bit more on the conservative side, they like things to be you know, more ordered. They like things to be, you know, again, they emphasize, you know, things like convention, tradition, things like that. And so, you know, they're, they're used to something being a, a certain way. And so you, you get all of that going on. At the individual level, we probably wouldn't notice it as much, except that we've got these structures. And so, as we know, you know, whether one is you know, identified as Republican or liberal has a lot to do with how you're responding to what's going on around us right now. Um, and that makes it a little bit more difficult socially for people. But I think that some of the reports, you know, where people are you know, yelling at people with masks and things like that, I think those probably are fairly rare events. Um, I mean, I'm out, I wear my mask. I haven't, I have not witnessed anything like that. And if it was as common, I think, as what sometimes people think it is, I think we'd probably be seeing some of it. Although I have heard from <clears throat> people I know who've been, you know, you know, uh, given a side word glance or had something said under their breath or something like that. People are going to try to seek to create some kind of normalcy for them. You know, just, it's kind of like, it, it's kind of like flying, <laughs> right? I mean, all you want to know is what, is, what do they want you to do at the security checkpoint, right? Right. And what's frustrating is, is when you show up and it's like, Oh, well, you know, I just flew out last week, and now I have to take my shoes off. I didn't have to take my shoes off before. And people just want to have a, some idea of what to expect. Um, and it, 
and we're not going to get there, I don't think, until we have a vaccine. Right. <laughs> it's a pandemic anyway. Right. I just don't think we're going to get there. Well, it, it seems like, as you mentioned, some, some people are having a harder time than others coming to grips with this turmoil that, that exists. Some people perfectly fine uh, with this. They, they, they're, they're fine and very comfortable striving collectively towards such a goal as flattening the curve of virus infections. But others don't seem to be near as interested in being a part of, uh, of that effort. Is that a common social dynamic or is there something different going on here? If it wasn't a common social dynamic, uh, people would be all about public health. You know, people are going to think about, again, we're human beings. We have a short horizon, right? Uh, we're usually thinking about things not way off in the distance. Um, and we do what seems to be good right now, especially Americans. We like convenience. There's nothing convenient about wearing these masks. Um, there's nothing convenient about having to change the way you shop. Um, hey, I want to get a, you know, I want to go in and I want to have a beer. <laughs> it shouldn't be so complicated, right? Yeah, you can't do that. All that's understandable. Um, you, and again, as you said, some people adapt and some people don't. And some people will readapt. You know, they'll realize, hey, you know, something I really don't need that beer after work anymore. And they may never, they, <laughs> they may readapt and never go back to having a beer after work anymore. Um, so, but we, we humans tend to be very short term. So we tend to think about us first, our family, and then we get out and then we start seeing, you know, the math thing is not about protecting yourself. I mean, a lot of people think, eh, I don't care, or I'm not going to get it or something. That's not really what it's about. It's about protecting other people. Um, not so much yourself because these, the masks that we're now wearing, they're going to keep it close to you, you as opposed to somebody else. But it's, it's a difficult. It's very difficult. We don't think in the kinds of terms that we're being asked to think about, right? Anticipating what could go wrong, right? Right. How what I do today is going to affect me three or four weeks from now. If if we did, we wouldn't have the obesity problem in this country, in large part. Well, when you right? when you don't be getting exercise. Right. Exactly. Well, when you couple a public health crisis with an economic crisis, that would seem like that could also change the way people view the situation. Yes. And we have unfortunately in the United States, um, our leaders have unfortunately put us into a position where way too many people are having to choose between work and safety. We, it didn't have to be this way. We, we could have had a different policy response. We could have done a little bit more like what they did in, in some European countries where they tried to throw like what they called freeze the economy. And they, they sent their money different places. You know, they sent their money to corporations to, or, and to businesses to keep their people employed. Instead, we laid off, you know, huge parts of our of our labor force, and now you know we 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 find ourselves in a recession, and we don't 
do we have the means to help get us out of it? It's going to be it's going to be a tough one. Um, so we've been thrown into more chaos, in my opinion, than what we needed to be. <laughs> right. Still would have been chaotic, but we. It's almost like you know, evil genius at work. Let's see how much disruption we can cause people, and how much difficult situations can we put them in. And the the people on you know Survivor and Naked and Afraid probably can come up with a better thing than what we've got right now. Mm-hmm. Well, as if the virus uh, and the economic collapse weren't enough, we now have sustained racial unrest brought on by the police killing of an unarmed, restrained black man in Minnesota. Uh, and this nationwide protest movement that erupted over this event has been, uh, in my opinion, stunning in its intensity. In its in- intensity. Uh, what do you make of the response to this, to this instance? Well, if, if you study um, collective behavior and if you study social movements, um, there usually is some kind of a flashpoint or tipping point, some event. It's very difficult to predict what that event will be, but you could see things kind of heading that way. Um, I wondered, to tell you the truth, I wondered if the um, Armand Arbery would have been it. Um, the jogger who was, you know, again, who was uh, attacked yeah, and the killed. The jogger who was killed in his own neighborhood. Um and uh, because that one just seemed, I mean, that just was awful. But even though the, 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 the people involved, they were, you know, they were connected to law enforcement, maybe he was retired or he'd been a reserve officer, I don't remember the specifics on that. I think having, you know, the, the officer uh, in, in Minneapolis, I mean, for eight excruciating minutes, People watched him die. You could see he was dying. People were watching it. They can tell something's wrong. They know he's in stress. Watching people not help him. The other officers, I mean, it was so incredibly callous that even people who generally probably are very supportive of the police on these kinds of things, that if they watched that, that was, that was difficult. Very difficult. And so one of the things that it did is it made a lot of people uncomfortable. I mean, it's one thing to sort of read about these and hear about it. That's almost like you were part of it. So you never know. Again, it's very difficult to predict, you know, the flashpoint or the tipping point for something like this occurring. The spots for these spontaneous protests, the violence, all of that. But you know that there's going to be something. And again, when you look at like the 60s, there's a lot of similarity here, right? You come into better weather, hotter weather. People, it's easy to come outside, right? It's very easy to, to be outside. Uh, so that wasn't, in that sense, it's it followed what we know about these kinds of things. But the, the specific, it's very difficult to predict it. But it's been coming. I mean, there just seems so much, it just keeps repeating. It's like, how many more of these are going to happen? You'd think that that police forces all over would be saying, hey, we don't want this to happen here. I mean, I don't know. I'm just speculating. Hey, we don't want something like this happening here. And you emphasize some different training, you know, be alert, you know, don't get yourself, let's not create this for ourselves. If you get into one of these situations, and it's almost like, well, let's see if we can, get on, let's see if we can create something. 
I mean, it's, it's just one after another, after another, after another, after another. And it just, it just finally was, um, too much straw that, you know, broke the camel's back, whatever kind of cliche you want. Well, when it finally happened, were you at all uh, surprised at the intensity of the uh, movement? I'm impressed with how, you know, it happened in Minneapolis, okay? Minneapolis is not, there's a couple of cities that are like American cities. And what happens in New York, you know, you know about. What happens in Los Angeles, you know about. Minneapolis? No, that's not exactly, you know, your world city, right, or your, or your your national city. So what was a local news event, you know, suddenly becomes a national one, and then it's recreated everywhere. So if there had been, you know, uh, demonstrations and, and violence and, you know, rioting and, and things like that in Minneapolis, no surprise at all, none whatsoever. The fact that it was... But we've, we've had demonstrations in every state, correct? Correct. For sure. And yeah, even around state. the world. And around the world. I mean, this has triggered something around the world. So now you have people, you know, in, in, in Europe, you know, doing Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's, it's, it's that's phenomenal. And then, of course, that's the power of, you know, the social media, the Internet, and, and everything else. So not only have we nationalized everything in our country, now we now we're on the brink of internationalizing things. Who knows what that's going to mean? Mm-hmm. That just seems to be a new, a new, uh, uh, and you have two of them, right? I mean, we have this international experience with COVID, and now we're having an international sharing of an experience around police brutality in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty remarkable. Well, among, among the topics we're seeing discussed and debated now is that of systemic racism. Uh, and as you've probably read, top officials in the Trump administration have even publicly declared that there is no such thing as systemic racism. Uh, how would you define that term, systemic racism? And how would you explain it to someone who may not understand what it is or what it means? Um. It is a it is a difficult concept. Um, some of it is made more difficult because of the common language in which we use to describe things. So we use the word racism, and we use racism to cover such a broad range of. I can say, I'll use the word activities, okay? That after a while, it, it, it means everything and it means nothing. Just a word. But it carries so much negative emotional impact that, of course, calling someone a racist, I mean, you can end up in a fight, right? Right. I mean, it's really, really a, a, a very negative term. Um, there is more precise language that we can use. So, uh, again, as a sociologist, you know, I would say, well, you know, we really need to be talking about three interrelated things. We need to be talking about racism. We need to be talking about prejudice. And we need to be talking about discrimination. Okay? So, real briefly, what racism is, is a belief system. Okay? It's an ideology. And what that ideology does, basically, it justifies unequal treatment of one or more groups of people okay, 
essentially is rooted in biology. That, that one group of people is biologically inferior to the other group of people, and therefore the inequality is therefore justified. And you can certainly see that with its connection to slavery. As African slaves were not even considered you know, humans. They weren't even considered to be fully human in the belief system of, the, of that time. And that, that modern notion of, of racism uh, that I'm talking about, that emerged uh, out of, out of uh, Austria uh, in uh, what, like the, I think about like in the 1600s. So it's a very modern concept, this notion that we have of one group of people somehow being inferior to another like that at this, at this group level, not individuals, but at the group level. So if you have a particular you know, hue to your skin, you're just inferior, period. Okay? So there's a belief system that goes along with that, okay? Um, among white supremacists, for instance, I mean, they articulate it very, very clearly and very strongly. The problem is, is that, you know, you may not articulate it, but it doesn't mean that, that you don't have beliefs that fit that, okay? And you might not even be aware of it. That's where all that implicit bias stuff feeds into it. Okay, so then you have prejudice. Okay, and prejudice is an emotional reaction. So one is a belief, another one is an emotion, and it's how you feel. How do you feel about people? Yeah. You have a generally positive feeling, you have no feeling about them, you see them as individuals, that's prejudice, okay? And, and that's an emotional connection, all right? And then finally we have behavior, discrimination, okay? Um, and what's difficult is, is it's possible to discriminate and not be prejudiced and not really have very much racism. And that's where the systemic aspect comes in. Um, you know, for the most part, most of us, we just follow the rules. But if the rules are biased and we're not aware of it, then the racism continues on. And that's how it continues on. Again, the racism, this would be discrimination. So you can have discrimination and people don't even know that they're acting in a discriminatory, discriminatory way. It doesn't surprise me that generally conservatives deny the notion of systemic racism. That's not surprising because they tend to deny most collective social Sorry, my dog here. Let me, let me. Sure. That's with him. He may bark in the background. <laughs> we hear of we hear of these things happening, right? <laughs> so um, the uh, the systemic part of it is baked into it can, it can be baked into laws that are on the books that nobody even really remembers anymore about how they have a discriminatory element to it. Banks continue to do what is illegal, redlining. For instance, right? right. Um, but you know, what, what redlining now isn't quite as egregious as it used to be, where they would have the maps and they just denied mortgages in certain neighborhoods. But now it comes into the valuation of your home, right? So there's another one where you know that has an aspect, and as you're trying to get a mortgage for a place or something like that, you know, the assessment of all of that. Um, it's baked into the culture. I have a colleague. Uh, who has spoken at Indiana State, did the first human rights day that we had, uh, Joe Fagan, he's at Texas A&M, a long, long career studying racism. He's been doing some great work with children 
and he's seeing racism show up as early as three years old. When I say racism, I'm, I'm, I'm using it not as precise. He's seeing certain words, language, behaviors that are discriminatory, that reflect racist thought. I'm better than you. Why am I better than you? Well, because you're skin color. Those kinds of things. That's learned behavior. Where is it coming from? Even the use of extremely inflammatory language among children, very young children. So it can be it can be passed along, if you will, in in subtle ways that again we're not necessarily aware of at all. Um, and yeah, it's not an easy easy one to. Um, uh, define um, a quick definition that you know suddenly people will realize you know what what we're talking about here is baked into the culture um, we're so racially separated in this country that we almost have no chance to really forge meaningful personal relationships with one another it's just very very difficult and that would help you know, if, 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 you know, black folks and white folks and, you know, everybody, if they simply had a chance actually to get to know people and instead of having this kind of abstract concept in their head of who those people really are or what they're like and things like that. When we, we get all these egregious comments, what was it, the state senator or something said something about black people have known that they don't wash their hands? Yes, oh, my right. gosh. Geez, that's the kind of crap that I used to hear from my parents when I was a kid. Right. Right, and that stuff gets, you know, it, it, it sits there, right? It sits in your head. You don't even, and then there's an opportunity, you know, and then boom, it pops out. And that's, where's it coming from? You know, well, it's just sort of baked in a little bit into the culture and into the system that we have. And it's difficult to eradicate. That's why policies are important. But again, when if you deny that it exists, then it's hard to write policies. It doesn't, like I said, I think I was saying before kayak started working. You know, again, conservatives are a little bit, you know, just uh, uncomfortable with the notion of, you know, a large collective at all. I mean, what was it? Uh, Margaret Thatcher said society didn't exist. That's just it's just a, a fiction. There is no society. There's only individuals. Well. Um, there's lots of individuals, but individuals create social relationships with each other and with broad. I mean, a citizenship is a relationship. Being a citizen is a relationship. Owning property is a relationship. But uh, it's, it's not surprising because, again, what's easiest to see is people and then to you know, try to find bad people. You know, it's a question of bad people as opposed to that the system is a problem. One's much easier to deal with, and one is much easier to disavow any personal responsibility with as well. Does that make any sense? Well, it sure does. It's a really fascinating topic and, and, and complex in so many ways. Uh, you know, as we... Hey, as I, you know, I, 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 you know I, I'm, in, I'm in my hometown. I grew up in Florida. Okay, let me... I'll give you an example. I'm old enough to remember when... There were signs that said, you know, white people only beach. Okay? And so where I grew up, 
we knew that there was well, there were white beaches and then there were beaches for black folks. Okay, those signs have been down now for 50 years. And if you were here, I could take you and I could say I'm going to take you to a beach and we're not going to see any any African American people. I can take you to another beach and that's where the African Americans will be. It's still baked in. And the kids that you see, they're, they're in a, they weren't around when I was around. The young people weren't around. It just keep, it just, we just keep reproducing the same thing over and over again. By the way, you know, the, when you live down here, the good beaches are the Gulf beaches and the bad beaches are the ones on the day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can guess where, who's, who's got what going on. Okay. Well, based on a lot of your observations over the past few months of the, the various social dynamics and how they've manifested themselves, I'll let you put your crystal ball to use here for a bit. Uh, what do you see or expect that we're likely to see happen in coming weeks and months? Well, I don't like these kinds of questions. <laughs> Um, I just don't. Well, it's, it's, it's because of the kind of sociologist I am. I mean, I tend to, uh, I tend to look to what happened yesterday as a, as a, as a, a good indication of what's going to happen uh, tomorrow. Um, well, we're going to get some added, at least local stuff, but it's, it's kind of predictable. I mean, you know, um, we're going to have we're going to have hurricanes that are going to create the problem on the on the Atlantic uh, and Gulf coasts. It's inevitable. It's supposed to be a bad season this year. We're going to have you know some bad tornadoes you know in the in the center of the country, um, and that's going to add into all of this too. Um, those will be more local, uh, but we're going to get that. Um, we're not going to solve the COVID thing. I don't know what's going to happen when when. I mean, the, the number of cases just keep going up and up and up and up. Um, regardless of what our political leaders do, you know, people, for the most part, and I think polls show this, I mean, we've got about 60% of our population that seems to be trying to practice, you know, safe social distancing and things like that, attempting to. It gets, it gets harder to do that as an individual. It only really works if everybody's doing it. So I think we're going to continue to see that we're, the COVID thing's not going away until there's a, until there's a, a vaccine, and that's that's two years away. So we're going to be doing the COVID thing for a while, and I don't know what you know for things like colleges and for schools. Uh, it's just not going to be what it was seven or eight months ago. It's going to be different. What kind of things that we can you know, try to get out of it. I don't know. You know, people are pretty adaptive. The problem is, is that stuff changes almost as fast as we can adapt to it. Now, the the the, the social movement that is starting that's showing success. That's not going away. You know, some of this getting rid of uh, Confederate general statues and things like that. You know, in the in the big picture, that doesn't mean anything. But for social movements that are starting, those are victories. They're important symbolic victories, and they keep the people who are starting to just coalesce around some of these movement organizations, they keep them there because they feel like we've had success, and they get attention for it. That draws more people to it because nothing, nothing 
will build it more than success. And these are small. They're just really symbolic, symbolic kinds of things. They're not really changing the lives of anybody. In many respects, for instance, people are discovering things that they never even knew. My, my, uh, my daughter lives in, uh, in Richmond, Washington, and she, they have discovered out there that Richmond, Washington used to be a sunset. They didn't know what a sunset town was. Now they do, and they're like, I, we can't believe this. This is terrible. It's awful. Um, so people are going to be learning things that they didn't even know existed. Um, and, you know, they'll do things to try to unravel that, to make it right. And for the most part, it, it, it's symbolic, but it will build the strength and commitment of people to the various social movements to keep moving for more and more. And... Um, I would expect that this is going to lead uh, to you know, voter registration drives, uh, more attention to some of the restricted voting practices, the vote by mail thing, even though there's been a couple of state Supreme Courts which have dealt you know, uh, difficulty to that. I think you're going to see a lot more push on that and probably some adoption to it. Um, I think that there's going to be, with the election coming up, there's going to be people who are going to want to be on the right side of, of some of those issues, especially locally. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think you're going to see. Well, and In I... continuation of, of the protest side of it, I mean, I, the, you never know when violence, you know, and property destruction and everything could arise. But I think most of that is, is, is quieted down. And it was overblown. Anyway, because it's so dramatic, it, you know, it's nothing like you know, burning down buildings and all that kind of stuff for television. But relative to the overall protest, it was relatively small. That's why some you know, leaders are saying, you know, that was a relatively small kind of thing. Yeah, it did a lot of damage. There's no question about that. It's not hard to do a lot of a lot of property damage. You can do it very very quickly. Um, but uh, uh, that seems to be, you know quieting down quite a bit now, but the protests keep going. Mm-hmm. And they're popping up in places that are just unbelievable, like Richmond, Washington. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate the, the fact that you were uncomfortable with that question, but I'm really glad that you tackled it uh, the way you did, and uh, I think it was very enlightening and insightful. Tom, we're going to have to do this again sometime soon. Uh, I really appreciate your insights, and thanks so much for joining us today. Well, again, thank you for uh, asking, uh, inviting me. I I enjoy doing these kinds of things, especially with somebody that I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Well, we'll talk soon, Tom. Okay. Special thanks to our guest for this podcast, Tom Steiger professor of sociology and director of student research and creativity at Indiana State University in Terre Haute, Indiana. That concludes this episode of Tuesday Talk. We'll be back soon. For the Tribune Star, this is Max Jones. Until next time.